0: The black flame candle only works when a virgin ignites it. Hey, what the- Hello, ghouls, goblins, and all you bad witches. Welcome to another spooky episode of Post Credits with Gil Garcia. We are halfway to Halloween, and to celebrate, we are going to review Disney's holiday classic, Hocus Pocus. Hocus Pocus was a highly requested film, and I'm happy to finally bring it to you with my review today. Before we get to Act One, I want to thank everyone for their birthday wishes. This Saturday, I went to Disneyland for the first time in over 10 years. It was amazing, I had such a blast over there. It was the first time I got to experience Galaxy's Edge, the Haunted Mansion's Halloween special, and the new additions to Toontown and stuff. There's so much that has changed with the Disneyland theme parks that it was kind of eye-opening to see everything with a fresh new perspective. While I was there, I crafted my own lightsaber, I drank from the most Eisley Cantina, I got to experience everything again like I was a kid and it was amazing exhausting but amazing i think i ended up getting home on sunday at about like 1 a.m in the morning i was dead tired yesterday i would have normally recorded my episode but i was so beat down from disneyland on saturday that i needed a day to rest up and just to casually relax my my joints and my hips were completely sore It it was insane but uh anyway thank you guys once again for all the birthday wishes it was a really awesome weekend that i had here But, sadly, I have to snap back to reality and get back to work. So today's episode will be focused only on Hocus Pocus. I may or may not reference the sequel, but I think it's best that we table that discussion for next year. So next year, we will do Hocus Pocus 2 for Halloween. How about that? And just like last week's show, this week's review will be completely spoiler-filled throughout the entire episode. So, no need to wait until the post-credits discussion. We're just going to talk about everything up front. It's been so long since this movie came out, so I figured everyone has seen it so far. So, and with that being said, it's time for us to Dance Until We Die with the Sanderson Sisters. Here is Act 1. <laughs> Alright, in 1993's Hocus Pocus, a teenage boy named Max and his little sister move to Salem where he struggles to fit in before awakening a trio of diabolical witches that were executed in the 17th century. Hocus Pocus is directed by Kenny Ortega, most notably known for High School Musical and Michael Jackson's This Is It, and it's written by David Kirshner, Mick Garris, and Neil Cuthbert. Kirshner was known for doing the animated films American Tale and Five Goes West. Mick Garris is known for writing Hocus Pocus 2. And Neil Cuthbert wrote Mystery Men and The Adventures of Pluto Nash. <laughs> if that's any indication of what we're in store for here today. Uh, the cast includes Bette Midler as Winifred Sanderson, Kathy Najimy as Mary Sanderson, and a horse as Sarah Sanderson. <laughs> Okay, that's a bit mean. Sarah Jessica Parker plays Sarah Sanderson. We also have Omri Katz playing Max. And then there's also Vanessa Shaw as Allison, who has acted in movies like 310 to Yuma and Eyes Wide Shut. Now, a little bit of a backstory on my personal life. It wouldn't be right to do a review of Hocus Pocus without mentioning that I grew up in a house with three sisters. Need I say more? <laughs> This movie was a holiday tradition, like the rest of the 30 Days of Halloween Marathon on ABC Family, including like Halloween Town and Don't Look Under the Bed, things of that nature. (laughs) So despite having to sit through many of my sister's favorite girly shows and movies, you know, things like the movie Grease, uh, the soap opera Passions, the Nickelodeon show Degrassi, (laughs) I actually really enjoyed Hocus Pocus growing up. The campiness of the film is of its time in 1993, And some of the things that I remember going into the revisit were the I put a spell on you sequence, the character Ice, (laughs) and of course, Allison was super hot. (laughs) So amongst the other media that I was subjected to from my sisters, I actually didn't find this one bad. I actually see a lot of similarities to them when I watch this movie. Hocus Pocus really does hit close to home because of my love and connection to my sisters. It reminds me so much of them. The Sandersons constantly bicker and they fight amongst themselves, giving each other tough love. They each have their own personality and strength. And despite them doing some heinous shit in this movie, I know at their core the Sandersons do love one another. And like my three sisters, if you girls are listening to the show, I love you all very much. But still, I will never forgive you guys for making me listen to the, <laughs> the Grease soundtrack hours on end. <laughs> Uh, Just kidding, but good times though. So it's kind of fitting that I got to watch this movie the weekend after my Disneyland visit. There were dozens of people all day that were wearing Hocus Pocus t-shirts, and I think at one point I did see three girls cosplaying as the Sanderson sisters walking around Main Street, which was kind of cool. (laughs) Very befitting of what I was going to be discussing today. It's a little underwhelming to say that the movie has a cult following because people love this movie passionately. They're dressing as these characters at theme parks. I think even Salem, Massachusetts holds a parade every year themed to this movie in particular. There's a huge, large number of people that are passionate about Hocus Pocus. This isn't just a Disney movie. This is an actual iconic ritual for the Halloween season for a lot of people. So if you hang on until the third act of the episode today, (laughs) we'll give you both sides of the tomato meter because despite the passion and love for this film, there is another side of the internet that absolutely hate this fucking movie. (laughs) So at the end of the third act of the episode today, we'll revisit the tomato meter. I'll also go over some of the hilarious zero and a half star reviews on Hocus Pocus on Rotten Tomatoes. I'll even go over some of the five star ones to kind of contrast so that people don't get too offended or angry at me. (laughs) Y'all responded really positively to the introduction of this segment last week, so I feel it's only right to bring it back and make it a mainstay on the show. So every episode from here on out, I'm going to give you guys audience reviews of the films, the zero star ratings and the five star to (laughs) get a little bit of contrast in terms of people's opinions there. I think it's kind of fun. So without further ado, let's get into my official review of Disney's Hocus Pocus. As I did with Hereditary last week... I will structure my review by going over some of the key plot points in the film as we progress along. It'll possibly sound like I'm chronologically narrating my thoughts and ideas throughout the runtime of the film, so if you have an issue with this form of review, please let me know on social media, and I'll adjust for our Nightmare Before Christmas review next week. Before we get to the plot details, let me speak about the technical things about the film that I enjoyed when I revisited this weekend. The 90s were a great time to be a film lover. It was that sweet spot when movies were still heavily made with practical effects and stunts. And we were just about six years away from things like The Matrix and CGI really pushed the boundaries of filmmaking. So this movie kind of benefits from being made right before the CGI transition. Things like Billy the Zombie's head getting kicked off his body... Binks getting tragically run over, and Sarah Jessica Parker's lullaby over the city of Salem wouldn't work so well if it was made in the 2000s with the 2000s computer effects. There's a lot of practical filmmaking here that makes it feel a lot more personal and a lot more realistic, in my opinion. Now, of course, there are limitations to this practical filmmaking. Shots of the sisters sucking the life out of Max and Emily look a bit silly, since the editors had to put on a transparent layer above the actors to make it seem like the potion was making them vulnerable to the witch's magic, but none of this really bothered me. It does make me appreciate the way that they crafted this movie a little bit more. It's definitely a relic of the time, and they did the best with what they had. The wire work for Bette, Kathy, and Sarah flying over the cemetery is nicely done, despite looking a bit outdated. You could tell that the shots were filmed on a sound stage. In fact, it oddly fits in well with the personal atmosphere of the story. Perhaps because the town of Salem is so small, the smaller stages and budget really dive into the isolated feeling that Max, Allison, and Danny go throughout in this film. Look I know this movie isn't some allegorical masterpiece like Hereditary was last week, but I just wanted to spin the lack of large filming locations and special effects into a positive here. I do want to give credit where credit's due. This was made at a time before all of these special effects and computers were used. And I like it. I like it because of that reason. It does have a nostalgic feel to it. I fully expected to go into this movie with some intense criticisms about how it looked and the feeling of it being outdated, but I was pleasantly surprised with how well it holds up. We all know the cult following this film has and it stems from the amazing performances of its three central antagonists, Winifred Sanderson, Sarah Sanderson, and Mary Sanderson. There is great chemistry between Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Kathy Najimy here. Winifred is obviously the shot caller. She's the leader, and she's the vilest of the group. She is also the most powerful. Bette is given some excellent material to chew the scenery, She comes off very charismatic, entertaining, and I do have to mention that the teeth that Winifred sports are, in fact, fake. (laughs) They are not Ben Midler's real teeth. I had to go down the rabbit hole to kind of find that out because I was completely distracted on them when I was watching this movie. (laughs) But they are not real teeth. Don't don't worry about that. (laughs) Alright, so I know I made the joke about Sarah Jessica Parker looking like a horse, but... That doesn't really apply in this movie. In Hocus Pocus, Sarah Jessica Parker was at her peak attractiveness. Five years after this movie, Sarah would go on to shoot the pilot for Sex and the City, and the rest is history. But in this movie, she's a knockout, she's really hot, and she's incredibly sexy. She's sexy, she's ditzy, she's funny, charismatic, and probably, (laughs) in my opinion, the most concerning sister of the bunch. (laughs) Sarah's fascination with playing with children and young boys comes off slightly pedophilic and creepy. The other sisters have the intention of just murdering the kids and eating them, but Sarah's mind is slightly more devious and sexual to an extent. I think it's a testament to how charming and funny Sarah is here. These movies have a weird, dark subtext, but people love Sarah Sanderson so much. Her singing is another big standout for Sarah Jessica Parker's performance. The lullaby is haunting, it's nostalgic and beautiful, and you can feel the sad hopelessness of it. And Sarah actually did perform the lullaby herself, so her voice is very beautiful in this movie. Mary, played by Kathy Najimy, is completely underrated in this movie when I speak to people about it. She doesn't get a lot of the iconic lines or scenes, but she does give the trilogy of sisters kind of a backbone. She's deathly loyal to Winnie, She's ruthless in the way that she pursues the children when they're hiding, and she keeps the three together when they grow desperate towards the end of the film. Najimi brings a lot of subtlety to her role. Things like her slightly tweaking her jaw so that she has a crooked smile. Her dialogue is mostly delivered underhandedly. That's not to say that she speaks over Bet or Sarah's buffoonery, but she does give a really good, strong performance as a supporting character to her other sisters. And... She's given one of the best bits in the film, and that is when they have their broom stolen, and she must ride a vacuum cleaner to the final confrontation. It's hilarious. (laughs) And what makes it even more hilarious is that as she's going along, when she has to pivot or make any, like, acceleration, you could actually hear the vacuum cleaner's engine kind of rev up. It's a nice little funny gag. I liked it. So one of the reasons the critics were quick to shit all over this movie is that the protagonists were not well-liked. And it's a testament to the strength of the Sanderson sisters. This is one of those movies where the villains are actually a lot more likable than the heroes. Is that a testament to the strength of the Sanderson sisters? Or is it a detriment to the weakness of our lead protagonists? I think it's a little bit of both. The movie starts off strong with the revenge tale of Thackeray Binks trying to stop the sisters from killing his younger sister Emily. You really empathize with a kid who at the time in the 1600s was so out of his league fighting these witches that he was willing to do whatever he could to save his little sister. And I'm sure many people agree with me. The story of Hocus Pocus is really Binks' journey Thackeray Binks is the main protagonist here. Suffering for 300 years as a cat, living with the guilt that he couldn't prevent his sister's death. And having to safeguard the place where she was murdered, it's horrifically tragic. Binks by far is my favorite character in the movie. And it's not just because he's an adorable little cat, although that does help too. But it's because there's a great sense of sadness and grief to him. And as we get further along the story we finally see that he's able to reconnect with someone the way that he used to connect to his sister Emily, and that is his bond with Danny, Max's little sister. It's a sweet plot point of the movie, and the dynamic between Danny and Thackeray is one of the most endearing parts of the film. Danny, played by Thora Birch, is brash, a little rude at times, but means well for her big brother. Thora is another standout in this movie for me. Her acting comes across as sincere and delightful, showcasing some profound strength and some naive vulnerability. My favorite scene of hers was nearing the end of the film when she is captured by the Sanderson sisters as they prepare their potion. Birch, as Danny, tells Winifred that she can suck the life out of every kid in Salem and she still would be the ugliest person alive. It's surprisingly well delivered and well acted for an eight-year-old. I I really do like the way that Thora Birch acted in this film. It's a wonderful kid acting performance, and kudos to her. Now, how could I go about talking about Hocus Pocus without referencing the big musical number? I put a spell on you. (laughs) I'm going to talk about the adults in the movie in a little bit, but I want to highlight the actual sequence of Winifred, Sarah, and Mary performing this song on stage this sequence is legendary it's this particular moment that the entire cult following is based around bett midler's rendition of the song is catchy unique and it's performed with all the force and power of a two-time golden globe winning actor and i really love this this scene in the movie the kids are in a rut since they are being hunted by billy meanwhile the sandersons are taking their parents out of the picture It's by far the best scene in the movie because of its fun, energetic, and iconic nature. I love what they did here. And this is kind of a testament to the director's strengths and why he got High School Musical 3. Kenny Ortega does a really good job here. Nostalgia does play a huge factor of my enjoyment in this movie. And I think that comes from the trick-or-treat portion of it. We get a lot of neat little details and cameos that make Salem stand out as an authentic Halloween town. The late greats Gary and Penny Marshall make an appearance in the movie. Gary is dressed as Satan. Meanwhile, his sister Penny, who plays his wife in this movie, wearing hair curlers and being mistook for Medusa. The hilarious bit of this cameo is that the sisters, who have been to hell before, refer to him as master in front of his wife. (laughs) It's so bizarre But there's a little bit of dopamine that sparks in my brain when Mary Sanderson sits down on the couch, watches that commercial of the baby wheeling around the living room. I remember that commercial a lot, despite the fact that I was like five or six years old when it aired. But it's weird. I just remember that iconic commercial and the music that plays during it. (laughs) And this bit of the movie is really fun. Part of the reason why I like this part of the movie is because it showcased a lot of costumes that kids were wearing at the time some of which were actual intellectual properties owned and not owned by Disney. Here's a few of the costume cameos that I caught when I was watching it. The first of which is Mrs. Potts, known from Beauty and the Beast, a little girl walks up the steps of Gary Marshall's home, dressed as the iconic Beauty and the Beast character. We also get Sonic the Hedgehog. (laughs) Michael Myers, surprisingly. There's also a Queen's Court card you know, from the guard that's in Alice in Wonderland, someone's dressed up as one of those guards. I saw the cowardly lion from The Wizard of Oz, and then of course Max and Danny's mom dresses as Madonna at the Halloween party. I'm honestly kind of shocked some of these didn't get flagged or that Disney had the rights to even put them in the film in 1993. But I'm glad they did. It really did bring me back to when I was a kid and I dressed as genie from Aladdin for like two or three years in a row. <laughs> So enough gushing, as I do with all my reviews, especially for the films that I like, I want to dive into some of the things that stood out to me negatively about Hocus Pocus. to kind of balance things out, you know? Your enjoyment of Hocus Pocus is going to hinge on your connection to Max and Allison, and this is where I have to knock the film down a grade. Although I do remember fondly familiarizing myself with Max, I don't know if he's as heroic as he appears to be. His entire motivation is to impress the girl he met in class that same day. (laughs) Her yabos (laughs) are all that he thinks about, and even when he's alone, he's in his room humping his pillow or whatever, he's thinking about Allison. (laughs) Sure, by the end of the film, he saves Allison and Danny by drinking the potion himself, but I still feel like Binks is the real hero here. Binks is by far more entertaining to watch and engage with, and Max sort of stumbles his way into the heroics of the movie. I don't think it's Omri Katz's fault for being the weak point of the film, but he did the best he could with his material. But when I think of Hocus Pocus, I don't gravitate to Max. Max isn't what I remember about this film. I think about the Sanderson sisters. And that's sadly to the detriment of Max's character. He is overshadowed. Allison, she was a major crush of mine growing up. I had the mad hots for her yabos, like Max did. <laughs> but I don't know if the romance in this film is earned, per se. Especially when you contextualize that this all happens within just 24 hours of them meeting each other for the first time. <laughs> it's especially hilarious that she's strung along for the plot. Because Max and Danny walk into her parents' Halloween party uninvited. They just open the front door and go in for candy. And then she just magically is there to go along for this adventure. I don't think Allison really does much in terms of helping the team also. In fact, she almost costs them everything. And I say that because I have reason to believe that the film was originally intended to end with the Sanderson sisters being trapped and destroyed inside of the furnace at the high school. It seemed like a natural ending for the film since the events of Halloween were long over at the point that they get fried. But to pad the runtime of the film, a new plot point was spruced up after the sisters are decimated. Allison and Max are about to share a kiss when they decide to try to use the Sanderson's witchcraft to help Binx. Opening the book at the last second by Allison signals to Winifred where she needs to go to complete her potion. So in a way, Allison fucks everything up at the end. (laughs) The final act could have just been avoided had Allison just went home and left Binx alone, but she had to open the book. She felt sorry for the little kitty sadly that isn't the only plot hole that affected me during this revisit by the closing 10 minutes of the picture winifred has her potion she has ice and jade caged up danny is tied to a chair and they have to force her to drink the potion allison and max manage to get danny free they spill the potion and the witches seemingly are defeated however there is just enough potion left for one person Now, this would be enough life force, as told by the story itself, to allow the sisters to live through the morning. And Sarah, her only brilliant moment in the film, clearly indicates to Winnie that they can just use Ice or Jay, or even one of the hypnotized kids that are walking into the witch's cabin as the sacrificial person to give them life for at least another day. But Winnie doesn't listen, and she insists on killing Danny, Allison, and Max. Talk about fumbling the back. Winnie, you can easily kill them after you survive the morning. It makes no sense to go after them when you have the solution walking right to your front door right there. <laughs> I wouldn't call this an oversight by the writer since they did have Sarah bring it up in the dialogue to Winnie. So I'll just chalk it up to being an unnecessary contrivance to find a finale they liked. I still think the ending with the skull would have worked better if they paced it out a little bit more, but it is what it is. A couple other notable things that I disliked about this movie. They're minor, but they are worth mentioning. And I talked about it during the segment where I gushed about the I put a spell on you sequence. Let's talk about the fucking adults. (laughs) The adult characters in this movie are insane. I get that this movie is intended to be made for children, but why did every adult character in this film have to be a completely dismissive asshole? And this doesn't just happen after Winnie puts a spell on them. Max's dad and mom clearly don't listen to their kids when they're panicking well before Winifred steps on stage. It's just them being pieces of shit. <laughs> A good set of parents would have at least taken them home or discussed it with them in private, but no, this Halloween bash is way more important to them than their kids, so fuck them. (laughs) Also, it wasn't just Max and Danny's parents that were dismissive. They confront a police officer with their story right before they go into the Halloween party. Only it turns out that the police officer was just a costume. I'm pretty sure that even in 1993, falsely impersonating a police officer is a felony. And this guy had the motorcycle, he had the helmet, he even had a Salem Police Officers patch on his uniform. He clearly didn't just pick up this cop outfit at a Halloween store. The guy had to have taken it off of a dead cop or something. But he pretends to be a police officer, listens to them, he even makes a rude remark to Max about being a virgin, and then he proceeds to tell them to fuck off. What a dick. (laughs) (laughs) And now my last gripe of the movie comes from Billy the Zombie. What a useless piece of shit character he was. The character does absolutely nothing for anyone in this movie. He's not threatening enough to be an obstacle for our heroes. And when he finally turns good and tells Winnie off, he's not helpful. He doesn't buy the kid's time or sacrifice himself. He just gets kicked in the face and then fucks off. (laughs) (laughs) I don't get what the point of having Billy the zombie in this movie was. Maybe it was just another spooky character to reference. Maybe they just needed a Edward Scissorhands doppelganger in the movie. But Billy Butcherson really is useless in this movie. Watch it again. You'll ask yourself these questions. I I, I don't get the fascination behind this character at all. It sounds like I may have had more gripes than positives, but the gripes I have aren't detrimental at all. There are more observations from a critical and narrative standpoint than the casual moviegoers would find as an issue. I don't find the problems in this movie to be so big that I would discontinue hocus pocus from being on my annual halloween watch list i still have a huge connection to this movie that makes me love it call it nostalgia call it sentimentality call me sensitive some movies are critic proof i strongly feel that hocus pocus fits firmly in that category of being critic proof sure it has a ton of flaws it captures the essence of halloween by delivering a candy-filled adventure that is safe to watch for the entire family And for that reason alone, I refuse to award Hocus Pocus a grade. This is the first movie that I can't subjectively rate. From a critical level, it's probably like a one and a half or a two. But from a heartfelt emotional level, I think it's a four. I don't want to average it either. I don't want to gauge it. I just enjoy it. I like this movie a lot. I'm sure you all listening at home enjoy this film yourselves. So let me know what you think of Hocus Pocus. Now we finally get to the part of the show where we start to wrap things up. This is the third act of the show, and that brings us our filmmaking factoids and reception. Circling back around to the reception this movie received and its cult status, let's take a look at how it fared on Rotten Tomatoes. Currently, Hocus Pocus scored with critics at 40% Rotten meanwhile audiences disagreed scoring it a 71 percent the critic consensus states harmlessly hokey yet never much more than mediocre hocus-pocus is a muddled family-friendly effort that fails to live up to the talents of its impressive cast so to pile on to what the critics said let's check out some zero and a half ratings on Rotten Tomatoes eh <laughs> Starting with M.B. Mirkwood, who says, Maybe you need to have seen this as a child. I made it maybe 20 minutes before switching to the Adams family. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Adams family is a good one. Patrick M. chimes in and says, The writing was just plain puerile, and the young actors were not up to the challenge. It was utterly predictable and simple minded. Midler was entertaining, as were Parker and Jimmy, but even with them, it was not enough to salvage a poorly written film. Fun for the kiddies, though, I would imagine. Well, I guess there's a little bit of positivity sprinkled in there. <laughs> oh, but this one, this one's real good. JP really went for the jugular with this review by saying, "Bet Midler would have you believe the plot is about three witches draining the life energy from children to achieve immortality. In actuality, the film itself sucks life energy from the audience to bestow the cast with the immortality of a sequel 30 years later. Truly a diabolical case of life-imitating film. Amongst the worst films ever made anywhere by anyone in any language. Zero and a half stars. (laughs) Jesus, man. (laughs) Did someone from the cast touch you? it's not that bad dude it's not that deep (laughs) i don't get why he felt so offended by this that's that's crazy to me (laughs) but of course i'm not going to read them here but if you look up the audience reviews it seems as though a lot of the people downvoted hocus pocus one thinking it was hocus pocus two And you could tell they thought it was Hocus Pocus 2 because they vehemently reference the fact that the lead character is an African-American woman. So yeah, I'm just going to leave that there. I'm not going to say any more about that. That's so bullshit. (laughs) And it clearly doesn't reflect on Hocus Pocus 1. Also, I want to make note that while scouring these 0.5 reviews, I noticed a lot of them came from male audiences. So to balance that, Let's take a look at what the ladies and five star audiences had to say. Jessica F. writes One of my all time favorite movies. I can quote almost the entire movie. Definitely a cult classic that is a must watch for everyone. Maddie R. then goes on to reiterate and says that, with a bit of hocus pocus, this movie puts a spell on you. A delightful Halloween movie. See? It's not all dour and gloom, right JP? <laughs> and this is my favorite review, coming from Tane M. This cult classic has spawned Hocus Pocus 2, which does not deserve to be review bombed, and the newly announced Hocus Pocus 3. I don't understand how this movie has 38%. The dynamic between Danny and Max is my favorite, and Binks always breaks my heart. I agree, Tane. I agree. Binks broke my heart as well. Well, I hope you all enjoyed this audience insight into the weird, divisive nature of Hocus Pocus. I was surprised to discover how many people actually hate this movie with a passion. (laughs) Now, there's one last thing to do before we call it a week. It's time to go over some filmmaking factoids for Hocus Pocus. This first one is a real shocker, but we talked about Billy Butcherson played by the famous monster actor Doug Jones, who is known for Hellboy and The Shape of Water. During a 20th anniversary screening of this film, Doug Jones revealed that the moths that came out of his mouth at the end of the film are real. They were not CGI. In a 2018 interview with Bloody Disgusting, the makeup and special effects designer Tony Gardner said that the actor wore a mouth rig, which was a latex pocket attached to the dentures that blocked off Jones' throat to make the moths come out. There was a small hole punched in the very back of the pocket so that Doug could cough some air through it. An animal wrangler would then place several moths into the pocket with tweezers, then the stitches would be glued shut. And we'd run out of frame so that they could get the shot as fast as possible without the moths being trapped in his mouth. <laughs> pretty fucking crazy. But that just goes to show the practical nature of these effects back in the day. I love practical filmmaking and what people had to do back in the day to get a simple shot like Billy Butcherson slicing open his mouth to be able to speak to Winnie. That was pretty cool. Sarah Jessica Parker has said that she found that being in the flying broom harness was so uncomfortable that instead of being lowered back to the ground during the extended downtime between shots, she would stash a copy of the New York Times in her person to read while she was remaining suspended in air. Oh, this one was really interesting. The role of Max Dennison was originally offered to Leonardo DiCaprio. Imagine... Hocus Pocus starring Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, Kathy Najimy, and Leonardo DiCaprio. That's insane. Sadly, Leo had to turn down the role because he was set to appear in What's Eating Gilbert Grape that same year. Here's what's really cool. The city of Salem, Massachusetts used the film as a theme for the opening parade of their 2018 Haunted Happenings to coincide with the film's 25th anniversary. The local National Park Service office made a doll of Winifred dressed in one of their uniforms while the Saltonstall School made a float based on Thackeray Binks. Pretty cool. You can find pictures of that online. I like the little Thackeray Binks cat float. It's kind of cute. <laughs> During a February 10th, 2008 interview on the BBC show Breakfast, Bette Midler stated that this was her favorite of all her films pretty large testament considering that Bette Midler has been nominated for two Academy Awards and has won two Golden Globes. Here's a cool one. Rhythm and Hughes, a CGI company who created the CGI Thackeray Binks, went to great lengths to ensure that the facial features of the kitty were an actual cat. The studio found it a bit too realistic, notably the fangs on the teeth, and felt that Binks might have been too scary and sinister in initial viewings. To make him appear friendlier, Rhythm and Hughes made his fangs smaller and less pointed. <laughs> That's kind of cute. As you guys know, I love cats, by the way. Disney bought the script in 1984. They then sat on the project for eight years, and the original title of this movie was Disney's Halloween House, and was supposed to be a much darker and scarier film. Rumors that Disney considered turning it into a made-for-TV movie at one point had spread over the internet, but have not been confirmed by the cast or crew. I don't think this movie would have had the same effect if it was called Halloween House instead of Hocus Pocus. Sean Murray. He played the human version of Binx. An actor, Jason Marsden, not James Marsden, voiced the character, both in his human and feline forms. In 2017, Marsden told the Daily Beast that producers dubbed his voice over Murray because the actor sounded contemporary, and they thought it would be more realistic if Binks had an affected accent from the same time period of The Witches. So when you watch the film, you may notice there's a bit of lip syncing issues with Thackeray Binks when he's a human. It's because the actual actor that played Thackeray Binks was being dubbed over. They didn't use his voice. It's the same effect they used in The Phantom Menace when Ray Park was used as the actual Darth Maul stand-in, but they ended up using Peter Serafinowicz's voice as Darth Maul's real voice. In a 2019 interview with Glamour, the film's costume designer, Mary Vogt, said each witch's outfit was tailored to resemble the character's personality. Sarah's dress was inspired by Sleeping Beauty, and Mary's resembles a baker's uniform. But Bette Midler herself inspired Winnie's look. They went directly to her to design the outfit. And Bette Midler stated that she did not want to wear a classic black witch's dress. And so they got this colorful green one. It's kind of nice. And it's iconic, of course. So we reached the final factoid. A sequel book was released in 2018 and revealed Jay and Ernie's fates. They were eventually rescued, and one boy went on to become the principal of a local high school. The other became a park ranger so he could join search and rescue ops, with the goal of helping lost and trapped people, since he knew firsthand how it felt to be in such a situation. I always kind of wondered what the hell happened to Jay and Ice. They never showed them getting out of the cages. In fact, in the mid-credits scene, They're still in the cages when the credits are rolling, (laughs) but apparently the sequel book that released in 2018 gave us definitive closure that they did survive. And with that, my friends, we have come to the conclusion of today's episode. We still have a lot left on the table to discuss for next year when I review Hocus Pocus 2. But for now, we lay the Sanderson sisters to rest in 2023. Thank you all for listening. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And you can follow the show on social media. On Instagram and Twitter, the username is PCwithGil. We'll return next week to crown a new Pumpkin King with Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. And as always, I'm Gil, and I ask that you go catch a movie.